You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against your children, the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Amen. Yes, thank you, Matthew. And thank you, Nancy and Bobby, for the beautiful music. I'm going to ask you a very difficult question to begin this morning. If you had to pick one of the Ten Commandments to be number one, which one would you pick? Which is the top commandment, the premier commandment? Maybe it's not even fair to ask such a question. Maybe it's like asking a father of ten children which one is the greatest or which one is their favorite. It did happen once. There's a story told by a Christian author, Brennan Manning, in a book he wrote called The Lion and the Lamb. And in this book, there's a story about a friend who visits a father of 13 children. And in their conversation, he ends up asking the father, is there one that you love more than all the others? And the father immediately started speaking. He says, that's easy. That's Mary, the 12-year-old. She just got braces on her teeth, and she feels all awkward and embarrassed. Oh, but maybe my favorite is my 23-year-old, Peter. His fiance just broke up their engagement, and he's devastated. But the one I really love is little Michael. He's so clumsy and uncoordinated in any sport that he tries to play and always gets teased by all, his, all the children all the time. But you know, I think the real apple of my eye is Susan, only 24 and living in her own apartment and developing a drinking problem. I cry for Susan. But I guess of all the kids... And this father went on to mention each of his 13 children by name. How could any father pick just one as his favorite? And yet, Jesus did. And because he did, we know now which commandment is the greatest. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to start with verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, speaking of Jesus, had put the Sadducees to silence... They gathered themselves together. I'm sure you've all heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
They were two opposing intellectual factions that were forever at each other's throats. It was usually over some matter of biblical interpretation. You know, envy makes such strange bedfellows. And here we see the Pharisees have just heard that Jesus had put the liberal Sadducees to silence. And they figured that they, the Pharisees, could do much better. Brings us to verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Where it says a lawyer in this verse, it's not exactly what we would think about in the 21st century. It's not a civil lawyer, not a criminal lawyer, but rather he's talking about a religious scribe of the highest order who knows all the divine codes and laws inside and out, So they picked him to test Jesus. And so what does he say? Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Of all the commandments in the law, which is the greatest? Which is number one? Not a bad question, by the way, for a people who champion the Ten Commandments and believe that their divine mission in life is to draw attention to the Ten Commandments by focusing on the Fourth Commandment, like the Pharisees did. They believe they are the great defenders of the law of God. So, young rabbi, tell us, which of the ten is the greatest? And this isn't just a theoretical question that he just thought of at this moment. The Pharisees really did debate this among themselves. Which is the greatest commandment? They believed there had to be some kind of hierarchy among the commandments. And the way that they had it figured is if there was ever a conflict between two commandments, the one, the higher commandment, demands our obedience, whereas the other one, the lower one, we would not have any obligation to keep. The problem comes when you make the commandments dealing with God the highest, which if you're going to put a uh, a ranking on them, you would probably make the ones about God the highest ones. But when you do that, generally, then you do a very poor job with the commandments that have to do with dealing with people and relationships. And that is where the Pharisees really, really struggled. So whatever Jesus says in answer to what is the greatest commandment, that lawyer is just waiting to nail him. But Jesus knows it. He's not deceived. He knows what the lawyer is trying to do. And the words that Jesus speaks are these, verses 37, 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and most uh, foremost commandment. Well, what Jesus has just done here is went back to the Old Testament and is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. 
These words are spoken every morning and every evening by every devout Jew in the whole land. Every prayer service begins in the temple in Jerusalem with these words. Those words are woven into the phylacteries, these little tassels worn by the religious elite in Jerusalem. And these are the words that are still spoken today in every Jewish synagogue in our land. Good choice, Jesus. But then Jesus, in a surprise end run, Jesus nails his inquisitor by doing something that no rabbi had heretofore ever done before, by adding a line to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.5, and we read that in verse 39. On these two commandments, I'm sorry, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. This marks the first time that a rabbi has intentionally joined together Deuteronomy 6.5 and that well-known line from Leviticus 19.10. And I love how one writer puts it. Ellen White in SDA Bible Commentaries, Volume 5, page 485, says this. Quote, Obedience without love is as impossible as it is worthless. That is heavy. Let me repeat it. Obedience without love is as is impossible as it is worthless. In other words, if our behavior is to do something and it's not in love, it's not obedience at all. It's not obedience unless it's done out of love to God. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Again, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now don't miss this. Notice exactly what it says next in verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments, or in the King James it says hang, hang all the law and all the prophets. Every divinely inspired word or command ever written hangs on this twofold commandment to love God, to love our God supremely, and to love our neighbor impartially. According to Jesus, love is more important than truth. Love is more important than truth. I've got to ask you, does that bother you? Does it bother you that the Pharisees were right, that there is a hierarchy to the divine truth? But the Pharisees were also wrong because there is something more important than truth. 
Does that bother you? As a community of believers who champion the Ten Commandments of the law of God, does it bother you that Jesus kind of just waves aside the Ten Commandments and says, I want to tell you about something even more important than truth. For the Ten Commandments are truth, are they not? They certainly are. Could it be in fact that James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, James, James 2.13, was right when he said, mercy triumphs over judgment. Could it be that in the heart of God Almighty himself that there is a hierarchy of truth and there is something more important than truth? Does Jesus teach such a hierarchy of truth? The incontrovertible answer is just one page away. Turn over to chapter 23. Matthew 23. Here Jesus gives eight stinging woes. He pronounces these upon the Pharisees. He knows that his time has come. He knows this will be his last chance to speak very frank with them. He knows that three days later, he is going to be killed. But this is it. The time has come. He knows it's curtains. Eight woes. We're not going to take the time to look at all those woes this morning, but we're going to go right to woe number five which is found in Matthew 23, 23, chapter 23, verse 23, a single woe that proves a hierarchy of truth. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Did you catch that? You have omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Apparently in the mind of Christ, there are weightier matters than even tithing. The very word weightier clearly suggests a hierarchy of values and truths and laws and duties. Does it not? There are some realities more important than even truth itself. Certainly more important than even tithing. And that is the point. And what does Jesus call the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faith. When Luke records this same story, these same words of Jesus, he uses slightly different wording. Let's turn to Luke's rendering of it in Luke 11.42.
Luke 11, 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So Luke renders it justice and the love of God. And you know what? This is nothing new. Jesus is not revealing anything new at all. This is all straight out of the Old Testament. You remember that verse in Micah 6, 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That is what Jesus is whispering to each of us, saying, hey, guys, that's what I've been trying to teach you. That even more important than truth is love. Love with all your heart, your God. Love with all your heart, your neighbor. You know what? I'd rather have your love than your tithe. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'd be thrilled to have your tithe as well. I prefer to have both. But if I can only have one, I'd rather have your love. I'd rather have your love than the Sabbath. Though I want your Sabbaths, but I prefer to have them both. I'd rather have your love than the 28 fundamental beliefs. I prefer to have both, but if I have to choose, if you force me to choose one, I choose love. If you can't give me both, I'd rather have your love. I really would. For upon supreme love to God, an impartial love to your neighbor, hang all the law, all the prophecies, all the doctrines, all the truths, all the commandments, all the time. Love, the supreme command. Nothing wrong with good behavior, you understand. Well, how did Jesus put it? For you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. What does love's hierarchy teach us? First of all, it spares us the embarrassment of being a church that strains out gnats but keeps swallowing camels. You may think I just jumped off the deep end and I'm crazy now, but, but those are actually Jesus' next words. If we go to Matthew 23, we had read verse 23. Now look at verse 24. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
Now this is a biting bit of stinging metaphor from the Lord Jesus. As I said earlier, he knows his time is up. He knows it's over. So he does, what he does is he goes to the dietary code. You remember Levit- Leviticus chapter 11, where there's a dietary code that lists the clean and unclean foods. And in that list of dietary uh, clean and unclean foods, Jesus isolates what is the smallest creature listed in that list, and that would be the gnat. And then he isolates out the largest animal that's forbidden to be eaten in that list, and that would be a camel. Now, here's where the uh, biting metaphor comes in, because you see Jesus just didn't pull this out of the air. This is something that was going on. You see, it's based on the Pharisees' practice of filtering their drinks to avoid ingesting any little gnat or any other little unclean insect. And yet, in verse 24, Jesus says, they will choke on a camel. Do you catch the irony? You blind hypocrites. You major in the minors, and you minor in the majors. You tithe your pennies, but you ignore your neighbors. You say you love the truth, but you never live the truth. What is truth? What did he say? Again, our main text from today, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Then in 1 John 4.20, it says this. If anyone says, I love the Lord, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Why? For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Friends, we can preach in our churches and evangelistic meetings till we're blue in the face, but if we omit the weightier matters of the law, Jesus is absolutely right. See what he says in another one of the woes. Look at verse 15, Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel on sea and land to make one proselyte or convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Have mercy. And he continues with several other of the woes. I'll just read one other. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus' somber warning is clear. If this community of faith does not learn and practice love's hierarchy, the demise of our community and the disintegration of our faith is assured because we will choke to death on a camel.
So again, what does love's hierarchy teach us? One, as I already said, it spares us the embarrassment of becoming a community that majors in the minors and minors in the majors. Secondly, it teaches us the value of people, that the value of people transcends the virtue of duty. Now understand, there's nothing wrong with our Christian duties. But more important than the virtue of duty is the value of people. I'd like to read a short paragraph from Mrs. White from Fundamentals of Education, page 157. Cleanliness and order are Christian duties. Yet even these may be carried too far and made the one essential, while matters of greater importance are neglected. Those who neglect the interest of the children for these considerations are tithing the mint and the cumin, while they neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and the love of God. Even Christian duties can be carried too far and made the one essential that everybody has to conform to. That is certainly how the Pharisees lived. How about us? Are there some duties that at some times we have carried too far? Perhaps pushing or emphasizing certain behaviors way too far? All to prove our holiness like the Pharisees, and yet not loving each other or our neighbors. And according to 1 John 4.20, like we read earlier, and therefore we're not even loving to God. For if you can't love someone standing right in front of you, how can you possibly love a God that you've never seen? You might ask, Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? We never saw you sick. We never knew that you were in jail. But Jesus says, because you refused to do it to the least of these, my children, you didn't do it to me. But then you might ask, Lord, who is my neighbor? There was somebody else that asked that question to Jesus. And you know the story that he told. A man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among thieves, and the religiously correct left him there until a rejected and outcast Samaritan came by and took care of his needs. Want to know who the neighbor is? It's pretty obvious. Go thou and do likewise. Jesus is painfully clear that there are weightier matters in the divine economy in which the value of people transcends the virtue of duty. His teaching is clear. 
The great commandment transcends the Ten Commandments. For they must all hang upon the great commandment and not the other way around. The cross of Christ declares that truth. Surely it is at Calvary that we see that mercy triumphs over justice. The transcendence of self-sacrificing love is exalted over self-centered duty. In closing today, I want to tell you a story that was recorded by a brilliant Christian writer of last century, C.S. Lewis. Some of you heard of C.S. Lewis? Some of you read some of his books? Did you know that C.S. Lewis had learned a little about Seventh-day Adventists? And he tells about it in a book entitled Letters to an American Lady. Sometime after Lewis died in November of 1963, which, by the way, he died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Sometime after Lewis died, an American lady came forward and went to a publisher. She said that she had many letters from C.S. Lewis, and they had been corresponding with each other for 13 years. Thirteen years before his death, Lewis gets this first letter from this American lady, and she told him how much she had enjoyed the last book that he had written. And then she expressed to him that she was experiencing a problem and asked Lewis if he could give her some counsel. Being the gracious Christian that he was, he wrote back to her. And when she got the letter, she felt impressed to return another letter to him and wrote back. And this started a long correspondence, writing back and forth, back and forth over 13 years. As far as we know, they never met each other face to face. There's not a shred of evidence that there was any romance in these letters. But we have all of the letters that he wrote to her, for she kept them all, and took them to this publisher. And it's from two of those letters that we know that C.S. Lewis found out about Seventh-day Adventists. Apparently, she, she writes to Lewis and asks him, what do you know about Seventh-day Adventists? And he writes back to her and says that he really doesn't know much about Seventh-day Adventists. Then the lady writes to him, describing an event that happened to her with a Seventh-day Adventist. And I am so grateful to God that it was a positive experience. She describes what happened with that SDA in America. And when he writes back to her, listen to what he says. Listen to what this great mind, the cutting edge of Christianity in the 20th century, listen to what he observes. This is taken from that book, Letters to an American Lady, page 109. C.S. Lewis says this, quote, What you say about the seven-day Adventist, he doesn't even say it quite correctly, he doesn't know a lot about us, but <clears throat> what you say about the seven-day Adventist 
interests me extremely. If they have so much charity, there must be something very right about them. Isn't that amazing? If they have so much love, there must be something very right about them. Listen, friends, if you really want to get the attention of your world where you live, the people in your sphere of influence, then live out the hierarchy of Jesus. For it is more than clear that there is something even more important than truth. For if you have that much love, there must be something very right about you as well.